welcome to another Scots OA podcast. And today I am joined by the writer Vicky Jarrett. Hello, Vicky. Hello, Ian. And uh, we're going to start talking about uh, your most recent novel, uh, which is Always North. And um, it's not the easiest novel to uh, explain what it is, so I'm going to ask you to do that. Oh dear, that's starting with the hard <laughs> questions. Um, what it is, um, it's it's primarily set in a survey vessel in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Um, for most of the book, there are also sections set in the future in the north of Scotland. It's been called psychological sci-fi. Right, yes. Um, when I was writing it, to be honest, I didn't know what it was either. <laughs> <laughs> So it just sort of, it, it became what it is. I didn't right. specifically set out to write a science fiction book, but it did kind of come out that way. But I think that's really a decision for readers. Yeah, sure. You know? Because I'm sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, I first read a kind of extract or a version of this in Gutter. Yes, that's correct, yes. Back in about 2011, I'm Yeah, say. yeah, 2011 it was, yep. Um, so... That suggests this has been a long time in the making. Oh, goodness, yes. In fact, I found a notebook the other day with um, some notes that would have um, been used to go into the, the gutter piece, mm-hmm. That was and that was um, 2010. Right. So, yeah, I'd been kind of wrestling with this one for quite a long time before my first novel was right. published. And um, has that been consistently, or is it something you've kind of returned to, like something that's always been there? Yeah, absolutely. I've had periods of working with it and trying to kind of wrestle it into some sort of shape, make it behave itself, and it's steadfastly refused to do so. So it's been abandoned at times as life and other work has taken over. And but I would never find myself able to completely leave it alone. I had to keep coming back to it until I eventually got it to the point that I was like, right, that's what you are. (laughs) <laughs> it's which is very interesting because it seems incredibly timely it seems like this is the perfect mm. time for it to be published it's dealing with um, climate concern and it's dealing with science and the, the greed of man and all of these things I, w- I was thinking that you know if I was going to recommend Greta Thunberg a Scottish novel this is the one that I would say <laughs> oh, brilliant. That. Um, but it's, so it, it, that just a kind of coincidence that or was there circumstances that were going on elsewhere that pushed you to think no it's absolutely a coincidence i mean the environmental concerns are something i've probably always had Mm -hmm. i think since um relatively young um and the fact that it's all come to a head now and we've got all extinction rebellion and greta and it's making headlines more and more as we're seeing more and more evidence Mm -hmm. that it's irrefutable what's been going on in australia and so on then but no the book actually coinciding with this increased profile is is purely coincidental right. unless the book was deliberately waiting yes <laughs> you know i'm sitting there going you know i'm not going away i like this idea that this you know i'm not you're not finished with me yet yeah i'm gonna yeah. come and so as you say it's kind of as i read it it's almost split into Two, you have the mm. uh, bit on the. Um, it's an illegal survey vessel, is that it's right? Dodgy. Yes, it's dodgy. It's definitely dodgy. dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got these kind of group of characters who are thrown together in, certainly in terms of uh, on Earth, probably the most confined circumstances yes. you could have. Um, and what I liked about them were it, was, it wasn't 
real stereotypes of, you know, there's this person and there's this person. The central character of uh, Isabel, mm-hmm. um, really, it's a job for her. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They, you know, uh, um, that's why she's taken it and everything as it goes around it. Could you say a little bit about her as your central character? Well, I didn't want to have um, either a hero or an anti-hero. Yeah. I was very... Um, much wanting to keep her real, um, a real person, and not to reflect, I think she's very much herself, but I think we're all a bit of both, you know, we're all, and especially these days, we're all somewhat compromised morally um, by just continuing to live in the Mm. society that we live in. Um, And I wanted her to sort of be able to reflect that sort of push and pull of kind of knowing what the right thing is, but being unable to do it. We've all got to live. We've all got to make a living somehow. Um, I didn't want her to be sort of a hero or a villain. Yeah, she's a a, um, victim of circumstance in a way. Very much. And that's what I love about it was that you you start to think, well, how would you uh, act in these kind of extraordinary situations, but actually in terms of the way that she gets the job, fairly ordinary circumstances. And uh, so was always the plan to put her in this very extreme north uh, in the Arctic the situation? Yeah, well, the very first seed of the story mm-hmm. was actually the bear. Right. Um as seen from a survey vessel, because I did, um, I suppose, my own piece of morally compromised work, because I used to work for a company that made software for the seismic exploration industry. Right. I wrote the manuals. Okay. Um, and one of the offshore guys, who was up north, sent back a very short video, very grainy in the day, of this polar bear that appeared to be stalking their vessel. Right. It was walking alongside and looking over and looking right into the camera. And I just, the just goosebumps when I watched yeah. this video. It was just so direct. It, you could really feel the presence of this bear. And that was what kind of, I knew there was something there mm-hmm. at that point. Um, so, yeah, I didn't stay in that job. But um, I sort of started writing around that. And that's how the short story for Gutter yeah. came out. It's really it's interesting because um, you're right. We know are fed so much information that on the whole, whether it's how we eat or whether it's how we recycle or whether it's whatever we do, we know what the right things to do are. Yes. But yet, for whatever reason, there's other pressures that are on them, whether it's often financial or, or circumstantial or whatever. And I think that, that's, that's um, really interesting because everyone in the book, there's no out and out villains I would say nearly everyone is as you say they're in a role which has led them to that point and then Mm. they have to decide how far do I take this or how far do I not Um, I'm also fascinated that the bear is based on that experience that's incredible because you've got this polar bear in the book who is as as you just suggested just kind of they feel like it's stalking them but it's and I thought maybe this was inspired by, you know, film or literature or something else, but the fact that it's a real mm, thing, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Yeah. Um, were there influences on, on, on the book in terms of, I, I kind of thought of things like, well, Moby Dick's one, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's all about Alien or Jaws or something like that. There's that kind of feel of impending 
Mm. Yeah. This is not going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I wouldn't pick out specific influences, mm-hmm. although you've got something there with Moby Dick, definitely. Um, I read it a lot, very widely. It's yeah. sort of fairly split between what people might call literary fiction and your more speculative type stuff. Right. And I suppose it was from the speculative side, you kind of Margaret Atwood, mm. um, David Mitchell yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. and strangely Douglas Copeland, the right. Canadian writer. Yeah. Just, just this, um, the freedom to, if something starts going kind of off the rails of reality, or what we choose to accept as reality mm-hmm. right now, to just go with it anyway. It's like, oh, screw it, you know, this is yeah. a good story. This is where the story is, and they'll just go there. Yeah. And I think I was, not always, but felt quite constrained previously that I wanted to keep things in the real world. That's interesting. You know, whereas this one was just pushing and pushing to go off in not real directions. Yeah. And so just having the freedom to actually go, no, do you know what, I'm going to go with this and just mm-hmm. see where it goes. Because although, uh, you know, you say it's science fiction, it is not outrageous science fiction. You know, we're not talking about life among the stars. Or no, no, like it's that. not spaceships. Absolutely, you <laughs> could imagine everything that happens here mm. actually happens. In fact, probably increasingly it might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's looking to be a bit more prophetic than you maybe may. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, so this the second part of the book, I don't want to give too much away at all, but as you say, is set in uh, the future in the north of Scotland, and that is what I would call kind of dystopian future because things mm. times are tough. Yes. Um, did that come a long time afterwards? Did you did you always know that that was going to be part of it, or did you know did you have this Arctic story and then this was something that followed on from it? Well, I think I always knew that I would have um, a time shift, right. that there would always be a leap into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly specifically where that would be was um, partly my own experience used to holiday up there quite a lot right. so I know the area quite well uh, I've got a great affection for it which you yeah, apologise for sinking it <laughs> <laughs> um, and partly I did a fair amount of research into what actually happens in rising sea levels right. you know, the, how many metres what do we lose what goes first, what's there last. Right, and that's interesting. it turns out the Cairngorms is quite a good bet. Okay. So, <laughs> tip there. Uh, I just remember that now there was a, no, was a Matthew Fick novel where parts of Scotland are tethered because the sea, the sea levels have risen and they're kind of almost tethered to stop them floating off. I, I can't remember Yeah, there's that. a short story and there was a collection called Beacons. Right. Um, and I think it was a Janice Galloway short okay, story. Okay, and it be. had sort of everybody um, in camper vans and tents just, just streaming up north yeah. to get away from... I, th- I don't think it was actually specified what they were trying to get away from, <laughs> but it was this kind of migration. Yeah. Which I think it was quite an interesting thing as well with you know, the way the world is these days, um, a lot of migrants, refugees and their problems and so on, and it's a very real possibility that we are all going to end up in that <laughs> in that boat. So <laughs> It is quite a common uh, idea in um, science fiction or dystopian fiction where people escape to Scotland for some reason, as if just because it's <laughs> at the top of the island it's higher up. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure that that's the case. Um, so... 
from when you started the story, or at least when you did it first published in Gutter, to now, mm. what had you been doing in between that? Because I was aware of your short story, but The Way Out. Yes. Um, what else uh, of yours should we have uh, checked out? <laughs> there was my first novel, mm-hmm. which is called Nothing is Heavy. I'm not sure if it's still available, to be honest. Uh, it's a relatively small publisher. Right. Um, it did okay. It got shortlisted for a saltire. Excellent. Um, that was very much real world. Yeah, I, I remember uh, the way out was real world. Mostly. Most it yeah. did have the odd oddity in it. I think okay. a couple of aliens snuck in there, <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, nobody was looking. Yes. But, um, and, and some surreal elements. But there were a few stories that I had originally had in that that were kind of in the editing process kind of set aside mm-hmm. because they didn't really sit with the rest of it. Um, what we ended up with, um, mostly what into that went into that collection was shit jobs that I have had. <laughs> That's a good name for a collection. Yeah, I thought, it, well that was my idea, but they weren't going to go for it. But um, I mean, they're not, I hasten to emphasise autobiographical, mm-hmm. but it's good to have this little seed of experience yeah, that yeah. starts things rolling, like the bear in the current yes. story. Yeah, know? absolutely. And there's always got to be that little bit of real life that sort of tugs at you and, you know, makes you follow it. And uh, so... Over all the time you've been writing and being published, I'm interested uh, how you've seen the kind of landscape change in it. Has it been? Mm, yes, it has changed quite a lot. There's very, very many more books yeah, out there. Yeah. Um, it's hard to get an individual book noticed. Yes. Um, it's certainly hard to break into um, being published by the larger houses which would get you the kind of publicity to raise a book above the tide. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot more expected of authors in terms of fronting up for your work. Right. Um, I, mean, I, that? Just I mean, turning doing up, right. doing, in, doing interviews, going to book festivals, <laughs> doing, you know, being on social media, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, whereas, I mean, when I first started writing, which was Ooh, last century, which makes me sound ancient. Um, there's you still pretty much could just write and, and stay in your box room, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody really needed to see you. It was about the writing, you yes. know. And I think a, a lot of writers kind of struggle with that. Yeah, absolutely. Because really, by definition, if you like to write, you kind of like to sit in a room on your own and not talk to anybody. So yeah. having to go out and be kind of social and networky and everything. Personally, I find it gives you a kind of like emotional whiplash in yes. a way because it's just a very such a black and white dichotomy, completely different exercise. Yeah. And then trying to get back into the kind of get your head back into the writing zone can be hard again yeah. as well. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really interesting. I think um, something I've noticed, particularly with poetry, which has increasingly become kind of performance poetry. You mm. know, you have to be able to get out there and perform it. And as you see, now you've got to have um, an online presence and um, a... And, and I don't know, I was talking to someone who, makes, who is in film and they were saying how now increasingly it's not about um, full-length reviews or anything, it's really just about a couple of sentences that you can then stick on the poster. Oh, and I'm wondering if... if, if if sometimes that's the same way with books. Yeah, I feel it kind of is. I think people's attention spans 
are ever shrinking mm-hmm. and we tend to I find myself doing it I'm reading the news online and I'm scanning the really? headlines again it's that thing about we know what's right and what's best <laughs> for us but we also know oh, do you know what I've got the kettle's boiling I can fit in yeah yeah I've got 10 minutes before I've got to go to work and I want yeah. to see what's going on in the world so just you know give me yeah. the give me the bullet points um, that said I think there is still a market for books you know oh, I yes. still know a lot of readers yeah. um, people do still read and I think this whole kind of death of the novel and death of reading is, is largely exaggerated. No, I think you know? definitely. I think there was a point um, when I, you know, you could get anything online and people were buying Kindles and all, and that seems mm. to have reversed. I'm it does, to say. apparently, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm interested in that idea because I thought that feeling about um, shorter things would have meant that the short story would have kind of become more popular but I'm not sure what, I don't it? think that's really happened yeah, I, I think, think it's actually even harder mm. um, to get a short story co- collection published yeah. now I know you know existing quite high profile writers struggle to get their short fiction accepted for publication yeah. because there's a quite limited market for that and sometimes I think it's mostly writers writers love to read <laughs> short stories and they love to write them it's, I mean I've always loved mm. the short story form um but yeah, it's it's never been a big seller in this country. It does yeah. in other countries. I think America it's still fairly got a decent profile. Yeah. And I know some of the European countries have a much better results with short stories. But people here seem to want yeah, quantity. I never mind the quality. Because <laughs> the year I was looking at the review of the way out and in that year alone you had collections from Kristen Logan, mm-hmm. Annalisa McIntosh, um, Alan Wilson. And then since you've had fantastic collections from Helen McClory and Chris McQueer to name just yeah, two. absolutely love both of them. Um, and you think these should be regarded as highly as any. Yeah. No? Yes. But yeah, I do know that for people who have maybe even made the name of short story writers to begin with, they feel this pressure that the novel is the be all. Yeah. Yeah, it's and a strange thing. It's a strange thing. I mean, I always, um, maybe slight heresy, but kind of prefer James Kelman's short fiction. You're in good company. Yes, well, really? I, I really do. I think it's his best <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, the reason being, I think it suits what he tends to do, which is little, not little, but snapshots of kind of people's lives. I mean, you're in them and you, you see what that, what's happening in the detail and then you're out. And yeah. that to me suits a short absolutely. story. Absolutely. Yeah. Some absolutely cracking short stories there. I mean, there are always good collections to be had and it is just a shame that they don't sell better to the kind of wider reading public. I'm not really not sure what to do to address that. Yeah. If, if I did know, I would be doing it. <laughs> is there a short story festival or something? I don't think there is. Uh, I think occasionally there's sort of short story week and short story months and there's a few blogs and websites that kind of promote it, but nothing terribly high profile, mm. I don't think. Um... So going back to Always North, uh, when you uh, published it, uh, when did it come out? Uh, just last year, um, start of November, I think. So how does that process work? I'm interested from a writer's point of view. You've written it, and as you say, suddenly, nowadays, there's maybe this um, feeling that you have to then be the one to promote it. Mm. Um, maybe, you know, publishers don't do that as much as perhaps they used to. So how does that work? How do you? How does that work for you? Well, where where it ended up, it did go through um, a bit of a meander 
um, and its road to publication. Um, it was originally accepted uh, by Freight, right. who published Gutter, mm-hmm. because they had published the original short story. They kind of had the, the seeds mm-hmm. of it there. And it was, we were in the process of editing when Freight kind of went kaboom mm-hmm. um, under still mysterious circumstances, yes. yeah. uh, which was very unfortunate for a lot of people. Quite um, a few of them on the podcasts, yeah, that's true. Yeah, more so for the people who had just been published mm-hmm. or were just about to be published. As it was, you know, I had to kind of get my contract back and so on. But, and it was time consuming, mm-hmm. but I still had the book. Yes. Um, and I was wondering where to put it because, you know, Freight knew it, so it had an introduction yeah. already and they knew me. Yes. Um, and I'd never really got my act together to get an agent, so I was kind of left with this book, this slightly difficult to place yes. book. <laughs> um, how do you explain it as we've established? That's quite difficult. Um, and trying to find a publisher, and it was really just a, a tweet I'd seen from uh, Unsung Stories mm-hmm. asking for saying they were open for submissions and they wanted um, strange difficult to place stuff and I thought damn it I've got I one exactly, of them <laughs> exactly the thing for you yeah and they're small but they're great and they're actually perfect for the book because they very much publish things that fall between the cracks of your literary and your genre fiction yeah um and although they're small, they've been great in um, publicising it and letting people know about it. And yeah, it's doing all right. I think mm-hmm. it's getting a few reviews, gathering them up and getting under some noses of people that enjoy it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's the main and, thing. Uh, in terms of having to kind of stick things in a genre, you know, wherever it sits in a bookshop, is that something that's... Because uh, I was thinking when I read this, well, it is kind of sci-fi, but it's also literary fiction, you know, but, does that bother you? Does it worry you? Well, it, it kind of does and it doesn't. It mm. does in that, I suppose, part of me worries that if it gets put on a specific genre shelf, like sci-fi, that sci-fi fans are going to pick it up and think, this isn't sci-fi enough for me. Yeah. And it's not going to be picked up by just general readers who might actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it got put on a literary shelf, then someone's going to pick it up and go, this has got, you know, weird stuff in it. I don't like this. <laughs> so, yeah, it's difficult. I can see why there are those different shelves, but it, it does make it difficult for the books that are a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I don't think about it when I'm writing. And I don't think, um, I don't think I will in the future and I'm going to put that aside because obviously I have been kind of thinking so what do I do next do, yes. I, do I now am I now a sci-fi writer yes. am I going down that road yeah. um, and it's just too abstract really and I think it, it's distracting from the writing process you know I have to stick with I have to write what I have to write Yes. and it'll be what it'll yeah. be um, so there is a choice really for booksellers and for readers but I think it makes it difficult, yeah. Because you don't, I'm assuming when you sit down in front of a blank page or a blank screen or whatever, think, um, I'm going to write sci-fi or mm. something like that. It, as you said earlier on, it's where the story takes you. And uh, if the story takes you to the Arctic and there's a murderous polar bear in there, then that's, that's yeah. where it goes. Yeah. And then it's only later down the line, then, that when does that come in you think, oh, this is this is sci-fi or it's dystopian or whatever like that. Um, I'm surprised. Does it ever take you by surprise? 
Yeah, yeah, I suppose it does, kind of. Yeah, but it's it's not so much uh, that a genre label kind of pops up no. in my head, like a road sign. Yeah. I mean, I am aware of having crossed a line sometimes with stories, but I'm just like, all right, oh well, okay. And I think, you said that you were, you were um, sometimes you wrote things that you thought, I want this to be in the, for inverted commas, real mm-hmm. world. Um, but, so did that stop you previously? When you were writing things, think, oh, hang on a minute, uh, this is clearly now in 21, 2020, and and the struggles of modern society and, and ordinary people and so on, um, that when thing, if things got a little bit strange, that it, like I was saying, like the, the difference between literary and genre, it's like, is it strange enough? You know, yeah. can I have sort of largely real world with a little bit of strange on the side, you know? And I'd just think, no, I'll just, I'll just not go there sort of thing. But I think the process of writing this book and its refusal to be anything else yeah. um, has kind of opened the doors a little bit yeah. more there. I think I'll worry less about it. Because um, the new world, as we know, is very strange. Well, exactly. <laughs> this is the thing. There are very, very strange things about that. And you can, there are, there's quite a lot of writers out there as well that maybe have that same kind of mix, but are over on the literary side. Yeah. David Mitchell being one, yes, Martha yes. Atwood, so yeah. on. Although she's had her own battles with being defined as sci-fi yes. and speculative and all that kind uh-huh. of pointless wrangling sort of thing. But it's strange. It is strange where we choose to draw the lines between things and who has to be on one side and who's on the other side. Yeah, and uh, yeah no, it's, it's, it's something that you struggle with when you're writing reviews because you think, well, partly people want to know where does this sit? Mm. And then you think, oh, well, read it and find out for yourself is yeah. it good or is it not yeah, yeah. so good so that's interesting uh in terms then of uh literary influences who who kind of inspired you to to start writing oh starting writing was definitely actually the sort of scottish okay. uh, writers probably in the 90s uh-huh. i think i started writing janice galloway james kelman al kennedy yeah. um Names fail me, but there, <laughs> there was. Well, that was a real. I mean. Oh, that was a sort of. Yes, absolutely. There was a magazine called. Was it? It wasn't kind teeth. Was it kind teeth? No. No, that's a new one, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. But um, I think Kevin Williamson was right. involved with it. Rebel Inc. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that sort of that, that area, um, and that had a lot of great stuff. Yeah. And there was just a lot happening there, and Scottish short yes. story writers specifically. Yeah. Um, and reading a lot of them, Gordon Legg, another one. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. And just thinking, what, you're allowed to just say yeah. that and yeah. in your own voice, and yeah. that's valid, and that's okay. And that certainly was really helpful to think, well, maybe I'll go give this a shot, yeah. you know? I think that um, people underestimate the importance of that. That uh, I know, um, spoke spoke to someone who is a teacher, and Chris McQueer came into his school in East End of Glasgow, and you know usually kids who maybe wouldn't read at all mm. just 
yeah, enraptured by this guy who was talking about the places that they were from and in a language that they understood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's hugely, hugely important. Um, so, it, was there any in terms then of science fiction style things? Because I don't think any of those. Did Alice Kennedy? Maybe no, I don't think so. I think they were. Mainly mm. straightforward. So did you have? I mean, you mentioned Douglas Copeland, who's a writer I haven't thought about for ages, really? but I yeah. really enjoyed yeah. Douglas Copeland. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like his stuff. Um, oh gosh, as I say, I read just kind of fairly voraciously, so I tear through a lot of stuff. Um, back then, what was I reading in terms of science fiction? Asimov. Yeah. Short stories from um, second-hand shops, basically. Yeah. I'd just have a, a, rum, a rummage in Oxfam and see what I could get for 50p. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember enjoying his... There was a collection called The Rest of the Robots, um, right. which I enjoyed. And, uh, oh, just... No, sorry. Uh, so well, then what was the influence on Always North of uh, Moby Dick? <laughs> well, I was aware of the sort of Great White Menace yeah. kind of angle as I was playing with the ideas and I thought well, I'd never actually read Moby Dick so uh, I, better, I better read it yeah. and just check out that I'm not you know sailing too close to it <laughs> <laughs> and I enjoyed it enormously and folk are not wrong it's got a lot of detail about yeah. whales in it because yes. it sort of alternates with a sort of adventure story and then sort of um, encyclopedic information about the inside of whales mouths sort mm-hmm. of whatever and I don't yeah, think there's a lot of writers from that time who wrote absolute classics that in modern days an editor or a publisher would say, well, you can take that out. <laughs> you can take, you know, all that. I think Absolutely. about, you know, um, Tolstoy writing about four mm. pages on wheat. Yes, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> like not that. a chance. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> can we just take that back a bit? Um, and, a, and, and, you know, going right back to Walter Scott, you know, fantastic detail about things. Uh, I think the, the, yeah. in any modern writing class they would say well that's your research is solid but but leave it <laughs> leave it <laughs> no, I think it's like... yeah it's changed completely the one I always think of is Thomas Hardy his novels would start with these kind of very slow kind of zoom in over the, the countryside yeah. and everything taking in every hedgerow and all the birds in it and the wildlife which is lovely yeah. but yeah it would not work no. today it's like right cut just cut the first um, 20 pages there Thomas <laughs> <laughs> and let's see what Tess is up to you know <laughs> it's exactly like, can we get to Tess yeah <laughs> this isn't you know hedgerows of the Durberbills <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was I think Always North is a great book as I say, it's very timely, um, and anyone that, that reads it will think about what is going on uh, in the world. And um, do you think fiction, as a as a starter for discussion or a place for discussion, is an important thing? Yes, absolutely. I yeah. think it's um, it's part of a wider conversation. Yeah. Um, I don't think any one book is going to be a definitive answer to mm-hmm. anything. But I think the more we're discussing these issues in whatever strange sort of cul-de-sac of fiction or poetry or songs or films, yeah. it's just raising the consciousness level, um, hopefully kind of overall to, you know, hopefully folk that are actually capable of figuring out what to do <laughs> will do it, you know. So I think it is really important, yeah. And there are a lot more books 
coming out now that are dealing with climate change yeah. and our kind of relationship with nature altogether. I just finished the Overstory, right. Richard Powers one, okay. which is kind of, well, it's like Moby Dick with trees. <laughs> so, <laughs> nobody's being menaced by a big white tree, yeah, now, right. just like okay. lay that out, but there's a lot of really encyclopedic detail about trees that does make you look at them kind of differently. Right. Um, so, you know, I'd really recommend it. That was good. That was a good one. Yeah. And I think I'm interested to see what comes now from the generation who are really... Um, angered and, and, and for want of a better word, fired up uh, about how things are because I think the, yes. the, the friction reaction to any problem is always really very really very interesting absolutely yeah. um, so you mentioned briefly you, what you think about what you might do next can you talk about that, that uh... <laughs> well it's all very much up in the air at the moment yeah. to be honest um, life and earning a living yeah. and all that kind of thing have kind of taking my eye off the ball writing wise lately but it's something that I'm kind of edging back towards and I think at the moment the things that interest me still are these kind of um, I don't know the, the, the meeting points of kind of the real world and the and what you know what is and what could be yeah um, and I like that juxtaposition. I've always liked that juxtaposition of kind of the, the mundane and the surreal kind of thing. So yeah. that's it's kind of at the meeting point there that always gets my attention. Right. Um, so yeah, that's interesting because I think when Always North moves from um, the scenes on the boat, and uh, which are getting increasingly frantic as things go on, and then cuts to... Um, what I would think is more, in my idea of sci-fi, you know, because you've got this uh, building where Isabel kind of escapes to, it's almost like a puzzle in itself, the way mm. in which you can't find where she'd been before and all that stuff. Um, a, I think I said it's almost like that's a before and after, yes. and you're not sure at all of um, who's responsible for what, and that's, I think, where the questions come, because there's... Mm-hmm. There's this idea about, well, it's personal responsibility as yeah. well as just going... Absolutely, that was a big... They did it, and yeah. that person did it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot about accountability. Yeah. Um, culpability. Um, and it's a really difficult question at the moment, because I think we all feel a bit guilty, you know, mm-hmm. every time you, you get in the car or... or I don't know, put your recycling in the wrong box or something, you know. You've got these constant little twinges all the time, yeah. just living daily life. Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine, I just said the other day that her okay. husband had decided to go um, car-free and said, oh, the yeah. worst week, two weeks you could have for not having a car, but it's absolutely hosing down and blowing out. Yeah. Yeah. For that very reason, so all right. you give it a go. Right. Um, I get it's that thing, again, about knowing what the best thing is but living in a world that um, ease or, or comfort or all these things are mm-hmm, difficult to, mm-hmm. to get up. Well, for a lot of people, you know, necessity. They've got mm-hmm. jobs that they can't get to any other way. Or, yeah. you know, they've got families to support, which necessitate this job, which yeah. necessitates the thing. We're all kind of, you know, like flies on sticky paper. We're yeah, kind of stuck in, in the system. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very attractive. But no, you know, but it's it's right. <laughs> So um, now that uh, Always North is out, uh, 
you, you're, are you happy with it? That's a question I've never asked a writer. No, before oh, that's a, it's almost worse than what's it about. <laughs> <laughs> Am I happy with it? Am I happy with it? I think it's probably true this that no novel is ever truly finished, but right. it's abandoned. You kind have of to, thing. Yeah, that's okay. But you have to just stop at some point, wow. and this certainly is one that I could have kept writing probably for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, because it's just the the sort of tinkering with the way the sections fit together and what you know. Yeah, yeah it's a bit of a puzzle. You said, and so yes, I could have kept going, but. I think I got to the point where, if not happy, I was kind of satisfied. Right. I but sort you of thought, can't ask for much more. Exactly, that. like that works. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there'll be people that disagree, but um, I think that works. It all sort of knits together, so I'm just going to put that down and run away. It's, well, it's just <laughs> interesting because it's been with you for so long. Mm. You know, a, a lot of writers, they they'll write the book and then they move on to the next one and that one then finish but this one has been with you while you've been yeah, in and out of yeah. other books that's why I asked that question like that kind of um, and it's also interesting me to say that I, I could have been writing this you know for the rest of time when it does seem the perfect time for it to come out to me yeah, yeah. so uh, maybe maybe you're right maybe the book was kind of saying to you now's, now's my time well they do <laughs> say I, do, I like that idea that stories themselves want to be told you know that they have their own internal kind of motivation and we're just kind of conduits you know I, I quite like that idea. yeah that's a nice idea definitely well Vicky thanks so much for joining us today not at all absolute pleasure and uh, we'll be back soon uh, with somebody completely different cheers mm-hmm.